The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Well, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Story City Church, and we are honored that you would spend a little bit of time with us on Sunday morning. We're going to do something different today. <clears throat> if you've not been around um, you know, last week or the last few weeks, you may not know what's going on this morning. We're going to have a panel discussion um, around the issue of race. If you were here last week, you heard a great friend, D.A. Horton, who spoke on the theme of ethnic conciliation. Um, a lot of times in our, in our culture, in our world, we'll, we'll talk about racial reconciliation. And uh, if ethnic conciliation sounds um, unfamiliar to you, I want to encourage you to go to our podcast and listen to the message from last week. He did a phenomenal job setting us up for the conversation we want to have Today. So in just a minute, we're going to bring out our panel, and we are going to um, have a real conversation around this idea that our country wrestles with every time um, a new thing comes up. So let me set this up for just for a moment. Um, we're not an issues church. <laughs> we're not an issues church. We don't bring issues to the table and just preach uh, uh Whatever the issue of the day is. We're not the news. We don't uh, pander for clicks. We don't pander for attendance. We have one issue, and that issue is Jesus. Amen. That issue is the gospel. And we put Jesus and the gospel on a pedestal. And that's the issue we come forward, forward with today. And uh, But as uh, the pastor here, one of our pastors at Story City... Um, just a few weeks ago, I, I really believe God impressed on my heart that we needed to have an honest conversation around race. I grew up in the South uh, in 1968 in the town that I grew up in. There, there was a protest and a riot, and three African-American men were murdered because they weren't allowed to enter into a bowling alley. My mom and my grandmother had a business two doors down from that bowling alley. I knew the man who owned it. My dad owned a business two blocks away from the place where the three African-American men were murdered. Uh, two months later, Martin Luther King was murdered, assassinated. And I, I grew up in an environment where racism was present, and to this day in 2016, it's blatant and obvious, and it's not even remotely hit. I realized that in bringing this issue to the table today, we have the opportunity to isolate people and push people to their own corners. Can I say to you, um, don't take this conversation today as an opportunity to run away from what God wants to say. So we take our cue for this conversation from the gospel, specifically Jesus. And where we come from is the perspective of the incarnation of Jesus. What does that mean, Pastor? That means that God, in His wisdom, and his infinite um, knowledge chose to leave heaven and take on the form of a human being. And in doing so, Jesus was able to identify with humanity. And so where we're headed today um, is a place of empathy. I personally believe, and others around our country have echoed the same sentiment, that progress in the arena of racism will only take us as far as our empathy will carry us. Empathy and pity are two different words. So don't confuse pity today with empathy. Empathy, uh, pity has a place of, uh, of uh, condescension. It has a place of paternalism. 
We don't look at the issue of racism as a white American, as something other than um, the person who has experienced racism. We don't look at it with pity and say, oh, um, it, 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 what a difficult circumstance they're working through. We look at it through the lens of empathy. In other words, we try to step into the environment and understand where people are coming from. We believe that's exactly what Jesus did. And so in order to move towards empathy, I believe it will require three things, and I hope this conversation will usher us into that direction. Number one, to, to, um, to have empathy, it's going to require, first of all, humility. It's going to require humility. By the way, if we think that our way is always right, and some of us often do, and we have nothing to learn, then, uh, then we'll never, ever personally grow. Number two... Um, in order to arrive at a place of empathy, it's going to require presence. It's going to require presence. I, I really believe one of the reasons and the inability of my white brothers and sisters, and I want to be real this morning, we're going to be real. One of the reasons why my white brothers and sisters, and oftentimes myself included, uh, have a difficult time entering into situations is because we have a lack of presence. We simply don't live in each other's worlds, but that's what Jesus did. He lived in our world. And then number three, empathy will require sacrifice. It's going to require sacrifice. Um, some of us have a perspective that we grew up with. Some of us have a perspective that we've experienced. And and we are all products of modernity wherein we have exalted truth, and I um, am grateful for that. I have a position statement on the scriptures where I believe they are infallible, they are inerrant, and I elevate the truth of the scriptures because we're all a product of modernity. But what modernity has also taught us, and the detriment of the modernity has, it's elevated truth, but it's de-elevated, if you will, Emotion and feeling and our ability to enter into situations. And so today we have an exercise of moving from the head to the heart. Because uh, the scenario and the situations that we read about on our news. By the way, I don't know if you saw the news. Two police officers were killed this morning in Palm Springs. Another African American was killed in Grand Rapids this morning as well. Um, you just have to turn on the news and you'll see another scenario and another situation. But the church has a unique perspective on this. Um, this is not uh, Dr. Phil. We love him. <laughs> this is not Oprah. She's great. This is the church this morning. And the lens we're going to see this from is the lens that we have through the church, through the hope of the gospel and Jesus. And so where we want to move is from our head to our heart. And it's an exercise in empathy. And our goal is to seek understanding. Our goal is to understand our role as peacemakers in this process. We ultimately see this different. We're not looking for clicks. We're not looking for attendance. We're looking to see this through the eyes of Jesus this morning. So if you'll do me a favor, I'd like for you to welcome our panel this morning. Go ahead and give them a round of applause. They're going to come out and take their seats. Guys, come on out. I'm going to allow these guys to, uh, to introduce themselves here in just a moment. Um, these are all people that we know. Um, some of them, uh, Andre, we've actually just gotten to know, but we have a mutual connection. 
and, uh, and friends. And so I want to allow them. There's a reason why all three of them were asked to be on this panel this morning. And uh, I think they're going to bring a great perspective. So if we can do this just real briefly, I want to start with Susan and just give you a minute to introduce yourself and, and tell us who you are. Hi, I'm, I'm Susan Bonds. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. I was actually born in Birmingham, something that I share with um, uh, Herbert, um, although we don't agree on football. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, I've been out here since 1988. Uh, my family's still in Atlanta. I went to George Tech. Uh, I have an inter, inter yes, that's right. Um, I have an entertainment company, and um, uh, recently I've had the opportunity to read through a lot of the writings of Martin Luther King, and so that's some of the things I'm going to share with you this morning. Uh, my name is Andre Robinson, um, just a pastor in South Central Los Angeles, grew up in Ventura, California, still don't get it twisted, I'm not from the hood. Um, but that's where our church is, we're actually kind of ending it now, moving up north to do some things with at-risk youth. My wife and I spent some time in Jacksonville, Florida, down in the south, and just started to kind of see things a little differently from that perspective. But other than that, that's it. Thank you. Good morning, uh, Story City, my name is Herbert Eford. I I'm originally from the great state of Alabama, the city of Birmingham. <laughs> I, uh, I've been in Los Angeles for 10 years. I uh, went to University of Miami for graduate school and Tennessee State for undergrad in Nashville. So I've kind of been all over the South, um, but I love it here in LA. I'm proud to be a part of this panel this morning. I thank Matt for inviting me. Awesome. So we want to kick off our conversation this morning. You guys are, know the direction we're headed this morning, but I'd love to hear from you two gentlemen just to, uh, just to usher us into this idea of empathy. I'd love to hear your experience of racism growing up as a kid and maybe even presently in our city. Um, my experience with racism, well, since I grew up in the South, it's like, it's a, I guess it's a part, it's a way of life. It's black and white. It's a straight divide. And um, I was talking to my sister this morning, trying to remember some of the instances of racism. And my mind went back to when we used to go shopping with our mom when I was a kid. And I would notice, like, if I went into a store, I was followed around. Or if I got in the elevator with um, maybe like with a white lady in the elevator, she'd clutch her purse a little tighter or kind of turn away. And you know, it was never just kind of in your face, like, being called the N-word or that kind of thing, although that has happened. Um, but it was more subtle where it's not spoken, but you know it. You could feel it and you could feel the way you're being treated differently or the way you're being mistreated. And so that's been kind of my experience. And that was um, growing up in the South. And even when I moved to LA at 42 years old, I'm still seeing those same kind of things today. Even on the West Coast, that's supposed to be so liberal that subtle little elements of racism are still there. Herb, you told me real quick before, Andre, you, you move on. You, we had a conversation a couple weeks ago, and you, you told me one of the things your mom would tell you about your hands when you're in public. Uh, one of the things I didn't remember until the last couple of years, you know, with all of the um, police-involved shootings with the, young, the uh, young black guys who were getting killed, I remember when I was going um, shopping or just like walking or wherever with my mom when I was a kid, I would always put my hands in my pockets, and she would always be adamant about me taking my hands out of my pockets. And you know, it used to really bother me, like, why does she want me to take my hands out of my pockets? It's just, you know, it was comfortable. That's just how I like to walk around. And I didn't realize until much later that she was trying to protect me because someone, a police officer, or just anybody who didn't know me might have thought I was carrying something, might have been hiding a weapon or something. 
And you know, just little things like that, you, that's just the everyday life as, a, as an African-American man. You just have to be on guard all the time. You have to watch everything you're doing. It's like you're always constantly being scrutinized. So even now, as an adult, I'm very self-conscious about putting my hands in my pockets when I go places now. And it's, 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 it's been burned into my memory from a child. Um, for me, you know, it was a tad differently because um, I was born and raised in Ventura, California, so I was raised in a beach community, and so things were slightly different in that way. But my mother is from the South, so I have that Southern kind of upbringing. So I remember one of the things she taught me was always keep your receipt. You always keep your receipt wherever you go because you need to make sure you can say you paid for it. And that would just seemed weird. Like, why? What, who's going to ever wonder if I paid for it? Of course I paid for it. I'm walking out of the store. But that was one of the things she just taught me. But for me, um, it was a little different. I didn't feel that they were going to, you know, holding on to their purses or anything of that nature. It wasn't until I was older. As a child, I didn't feel that at all. It wasn't until I was older. Um, and then, like, being at the gas station, I was driving this Audi A4, and someone says, oh, how did you afford that car? And I was like, do I know you? Like, uh, I paid for it. Like, oh, your dad must be a football player. <laughs> and at first, I didn't know what he meant. I was like, uh, uh okay, that's, he's not. Um, and then um, my buddy's like, do you know why he said that? White guy. Um, he's like, I'm like, no, that's just weird. Like, why would my dad be a football player? Like, dude, because, you know, you're driving a nice car. How could you pay for it? I'm like, because I have a job. Like, what? And it was just such a weird experience to think, wow, this is the reality of how people perceive me. Um, so for me, being a child, it was um, a beautiful thing because I didn't see it at all. It wasn't really in my face. Being an adult, I think there's a perception of now people are scared of me. And that was shocking to me. People that, I remember going to Promise Keepers here in LA and um, they had this one reconciliation night, you know, like the old late great pastor Evie Hill gets up and he does this, you know, do you remember? And everyone's like, oh, I love the sermon from the black preacher. And then they were talking about race and like, if you have something against black people, and I really, we left the black church early on in my life and I was at this white church really and all, most of the cats there were white. And um, he says, you know, I want you to spend some time talking to them and they all turned and looked at me. And I was like, <laughs> you know, and I was like, oh, no, you, no, no, I've known you my whole life. What are, you better not say nothing to me right now. You, and it was just the most horrible feeling, feeling like, wow, I'm not one of them now. I'm this outcast, even though I thought I was one of you. And now you're going to tell me you had this thing against me or whatever. And it was a horrible, horrible feeling for me. Um, so that's kind of my experience. Andre, we talked this week about you and your time in Jacksonville. And you said, um, I know very fam I'm very familiar with where you're, you lived in Jacksonville. My, my family is from there. And you talked about conversations that you had where people said, these are areas where you go when you don't. I'd love for you to share that. Yeah. When my wife and I decided uh, we would take this... Uh, inner city ministry, we would go and go to Jacksonville, Florida. My picture of Florida, my mind was Miami, was Fort Lauderdale. I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be great. And we got on the 10 and we drove out. And I remember we crossed from what, um, Alabama, the great state of Alabama. And uh, we went and we got gas. And I thought, oh, these people look a little different. What is going on? And, and it was really country. And then we kept going um, to, to the other part of the, the East Coast. And I was just, this is not Miami. This is not what happened. And it was just interesting learning the history there and how we would go to the beach. I'll share that story. We would take my youth group to the beach and um, I wanted to go to just Jack's Beach. It was, you know, two bridges away, a great beach. And um, my 
my parents were kind of freaking out. I was like, why are you freaking out? We're just going to go to the beach. Not a big deal. And they're like, no, no, we don't go to that beach. I'm like, yeah, my wife and I go all the time. It's fine. Like, What's the big deal? Like, oh, don't worry. There's not a bunch of drunk people there. There's not a party. It's in the middle of the day. No, no, we go to America's beach. I'm like, that's 45 minutes away. Like, no, that's the beach we go to. And I was like, why? And they go, well, back in the 60s, buses would come downtown. Black folks were put on that bus and were driven all the way out to America's first beach, and that's still where they go. It's like here, Doc Wilder, you go to Doc Wilder, that's where you see a lot of blacks and Hispanics. It's just, that's where they were allowed to go to beach in, um, here in LA, and that's kind of still where a lot of them really go. And, um, and so it's just a different experience when I was in the South, seeing the reality of even some of the laws of year 19, um, if you're like on 1970 and 80s, you really three or more walking down the street, you weren't allowed. You were for, you lived on this side or that side and you never really mingled and they call it mixing town. You never mingled at parts of the, um, on the street just because of your, your race, which was shocking to me. I, I, that was something that blew me away from being in the South, like how different it was, um, just the history and all of that, which I just didn't have from a beach down in Ventura, California. Hence why my mother from the South then moved there. Yeah. She says, no, we'll, we'll live here. Mm. So police-involved shootings have brought race back to the forefront. Um, and every time one of these uh, shootings have happened, we as a church have prayed over uh, those situations. For those who are involved this morning, we heard of another shooting in Grand Rapids. Two police officers were killed in Palm Springs this morning. I wonder um, what goes through your heart uh, when you wake up and you read the news of another brother or sister who's been murdered. What goes on in your heart in those weeks? Well, um, sadly, at this point, I've become so numb to it hmm. that it keeps happening so much that I'm not surprised anymore. You know, when, um, when the thing happened with Trayvon first a couple of years ago, yeah. I was outraged, you know, I did the whole Facebook profile change, uh, stand up for Trayvon, you know, justice for Trayvon. But now it's become so common, it's, you, you just don't even know how to feel anymore. You don't feel safe. Even as old as I am, as a, a professional with a journalism degrees, working in entertainment news and all this kind of stuff, I still don't feel safe. Like, if I see a police officer, I automatically cringe. Mm. Even now, like, if, if I left here now and it was a cop, driving by me, I'll make sure I'm not on the phone, I'll mm -hmm. make sure I've got all my, uh, what is it, the uh, insurance papers and my license ready to go just in case something happens. It puts a fear in you, it puts a lack of trust in you, and when you see it happening so often to these young men, you feel sorry for them, but you're not surprised. I'm not surprised anymore. It's just like another one, another one. When is it gonna change? That's the biggest question I ask every time. Is this gonna be the one that finally makes us stop? Hmm. But it seems like every time it happens, it just gets worse and worse. And now with the retaliation, you know, with the people fighting back against the cops, it's just making it worse. Hmm. It's gonna, it seems like it's just gonna be a never ending cycle. So you just, you just don't know how to feel anymore. Wow. Yeah. Andre. Yeah, I'm just sad. I'm just sad because the reality, I have friends that are police officers and love them dearly and, um, and, I, and I'm, I was talking to one and I said, you know, I'm sad because they look like me. So the reality is I'm seeing people being killed that look like me. It makes me think of my son. What, what will he have to look forward to? What, will this be a reality for him? Um, everything you said is just, you know, true when I'm driving, all that kind of stuff. But it's just a saddening, really disheartening thing for me. Um, n never thinking I would live in a world where this is 
the reality. I mean, to me, the South is the South. Let it stay over there. I live over here. And that's been shocking to me. Like, really? This is 2016. So with the police officers, I, I'm grieved by that. Because if something happens, I, I want the police officers to come. And I can tell you, uh, my wife, I don't think, knows this story. She's not going to like hearing this. Um, I, I needed some help with, not help, but I just was lost. I was like, oh, a police officer behind me. Boom. I'll just kind of pull over. They'll come forward. And I was kind of waving. I'm a big man. I'm waving. And he never budged. And I was like, oh, great. He's freaked out. I don't want him to come to the car. now." And then I was panicked. I didn't know what to do. And the guy, um, the other car goes, dude, he's not going to come to your car. You're black. And I thought, oh. But I was, I was freaked out because I thought, I don't want this police officer to come to my car now because he's panicked. Because clearly, if I'm waving outside my car, you can see me. And I'm like, oh, great, just this dumb GPS. I hate Verizon. and I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. You know, give me back. And that, that was, it was this panic, saddening, disheartening, just, you know, why, Lord? Yeah. You know, I've, I think it's a common experience for a lot of us. Um, and white, black, doesn't matter. I think there's a common experience often when one of these shootings happens where we will examine the facts of the situation immediately. Like our first response is, well, what was the facts of the matter? Did he have his hands up? Did he have a weapon? Uh, does he have a record? And, um, and so there's, uh, there's this, um, uh, th th we have this scenario where we immediately respond facts with facts and I'm reminded of the times when I have issues with my wife where she's vulnerable with me. And she'll say, this is how I'm feeling. And I'm reminded that in those moments, that's the inappropriate moment for me to say, well, let me give you four reasons why you shouldn't feel this way, right? And so um, as, as a Christian who has a unique perspective of Jesus and the gospel, we have this idea that we respond fact with fact, feeling with feeling, and empathy requires us that in the moment we jettison some things in order to enter into sorrow. And I, I find it troublesome as I look across the landscape, not just in our country, but in the church where we have difficulty entering into sorrow in these moments. So you've expressed how you feel. Um, and, and, and the emotions that these situations and scenarios drag up. And I, I would love for you to, to speak into the process, both of you guys, um, uh, around this idea. I believe we're at the point now where we want to dialogue. We want to have conversation. Um, and we want to come out of our corners and we want to begin to understand each other. I really believe that's where we are. Um, I often experience it. Um, that in the moment of conversation where we want to have conversation, I think I texted you two weeks ago. Um, Herb, I love you, brother. I don't know what to say, but I don't want to not say anything. And I, I think that would be a common sentiment for many in our church this morning, that we want to dialogue, but we don't know exactly what to say. Can you help us understand what's helpful in bringing this conversation to the table where we can begin to understand each other? I've heard guys say, I've heard African-American brothers say, hey, don't tell me you're colorblind um, because I'm black. It's not all that I am, but it's part of who I am. So, so there's, there's nuances of conversation and language that we use. What's helpful in having this conversation? One thing that's helpful in having a conversation is just that, having the conversation. Mm. Because a lot of people, like me, who grew up in the South, you know, it's black or white. Uh, the 
elementary school I went to was all black. The high school I went to was all black. The neighborhood I lived in was all black. So my interactions with white people were at summer camp. That was the only time I would interact with white kids. And that actually was my first um, experience with racism. And that's when I learned as a kid that racism is not something people are born with, I don't think. It's something that's taught. Hmm. Because I remember being at 4-H camp. I was like in the eighth or ninth grade, seventh, eighth grade. And you know, we were, some of, me and some of the kids were playing. It was um, black kids and white kids. And one of the little kids said, hey, you want to play a game? I was like, sure, what? He said, let's go. I'm, I'm not going to use the word, the, the N-word. Everybody knows what the N-word is. He said, hey, let's go N-word knocking. And I'm like, what? I'm like, what did you just say to me? He's like, you know, N-word knocking. And I was like, well, what is that? He said, you know, we knock on the door and we run away. And so in the eighth grade, I had to sit this kid down and explain to him, that's not a word you use. That word is offensive. That's not something you should ever say to anyone. Um, this is the history of it. I gave him a whole little history lesson <laughs> in the eighth grade. Um, and so that kind of situation at that young age showed me that the only way people are going to change is if you talk to them. Like the word says, the people suffer for a lack of knowledge. And, you know, he didn't know any better. He probably just grew up with the word being thrown around. You know, and, and racism is, exists on both sides, black and white. Because, you know, I heard it in the black community, too, people who didn't like white people. I heard some foul things said about them as well. So, you know, and so we all have to come together. What you're doing right now is a great thing. This is amazing, bringing everybody here just to start this conversation, just to get this dialogue going, because this is the only way anything's going to change. And so, like you said, the most important thing we can do is just communicate with each other. Andre, I'd love to hear. Yeah, everything you said is hands down just having the conversation. But I think to start the conversation, I don't need to hear, um, hey, you're black. What do you think? I'm like, oh, thank you. I am black. I, I know. I know I'm black. Um, <laughs> You know, and so I wouldn't start it that way. Um, I would think when you enter in the conversation, it's not to correct people. Sometimes we want to, you know, I, I'm a pastor, so I love correcting people. That's just what I do. It's like, so I start the conversation. The goal is I'm going to correct you. And I think you need to start the conversation with this heart to listen and to be open for a dialogue and not ready just to make your arguments. Um, so I think that's something huge. Um, I don't know, for me, it's, it's really, I think if, if you want to start the conversation, start it with Jesus first. And I think if you would begin the conversations talking with the Lord, seeking the Lord about this, and then seeking out people who are not like you on so many different other areas, it will help you to engage with people who are not like you. And I think that's an important thing for us to look at. How do we engage with people that are not like us? That's what the gospel is calling us to do, love people who are not like us. And so to me, that's one of the biggest things. Don't just don't lead in with these like obvious things. I know you're black. Like, how weird is that? You're talking to Andy, oh, hey, how do you feel? I know you're handicapped. Uh, how do you feel about that person parking your spot? It's just weird. It's like, <laughs> what, huh? And so uh, to me, those are the things, um, just listening, um, going with the right mindset into the conversation and not just stating the obvious. That's very helpful. Um, just because you come into the church doesn't mean that racism evaporates. Um, I, I know it can exist and it does exist and it can enter into in subtle ways. And, I, and I'm just wondering if, if, if you have experienced that in the church and, and how have you experienced prejudice and racism in the church? 
Well, um, the good thing is I haven't experienced it at, at church, but there's a, a, an old saying, the most segregated day of the week is Sunday. And so when I was growing up, you know, in uh, Birmingham, I went to the same church my parents and grandparents went to. It was an all-black church. And we never fellowshiped with white churches. We, um, well, we did once a year. We would go to an Easter program at this church called uh, Gary with Assembly of God. <laughs> they did a great Easter play, by the way. Um, and so, but you know, that was my only interaction with other Christians who were not black. And so, um, you know, I always felt comfortable in the black church. Um, I was in a black church my whole life until I moved here. And I went to a black church the first seven years I was here. I've been here 10 years. And a couple of years ago, I decided to um, try something different. And so I started going to my uh, current church, Reality in Hollywood. And it's been a great experience. I haven't had any um, instances of racism. Everybody's been very friendly. Sometimes I think people overcompensate. It's like, <laughs> it's like, okay, I know you're happy to have a black person here, but back off, back off a little bit, please, come on. <laughs> and so, you know, that's, that's a good thing, I think. But um, it's not like that everywhere. I can go back to, um, to the South now and it's still segregated. No black churches and white churches are mixing. Mingling, like the, the mix and mingle thing, you guys do, that's great. Um, you don't see that. It's, it's happening in a, in a couple of places. It's a couple, I've noticed the last few times I've been home to Birmingham, I've noticed a couple of churches are starting to become more integrated, but it's not happening fast enough, I don't think. I, 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 I think um, you said something that, that reminded me. Andre, we talked about it this week. Uh, I've got, a, I've got a, a, a friend of mine who's pastor, well, was pastoring a church in Jacksonville, Imago, I mean, uh, Image Jesus. And uh, it's a white guy and a black guy. They're kind of co-pastors. And, um, and recently, the, the white guy who in, originally initiated the church plant and then brought along the other guy, he recently stepped out of leadership. And he said, the reason why I stepped out of leadership was because I didn't think the church would ever see my co-pastor as equal as long as I was there. And I think, um, I think sometimes subtly in the church, we have this paternalistic idea um, when it comes to race. Like we have African-American brothers and sisters in our church. Um, but there's still this, I, this paternalistic idea, like I still have authority over you, or, or maybe you're a charity case, or, or you're a token African-American in our church. And I think, I, think it, I think even in the church, it has the opportunity to, to enter into um, our, our thoughts and our minds. And I would pray that in this fellowship, um, that's not the case. Um, there's an equal voice, and there is an equal chance for us to worship Jesus and be the gospel in our city. Susan, you've been quiet. Um, Which but, is unusual. <laughs> Susan, you have a unique perspective on the Martin Luther King legacy. Um, you know it very, very well. Typically, um, uh, in Christian social activism, um, most Christian social activism is rooted in the idea of the Imago Dei. In other words, the image of God. We were all created equal. And certainly that was part of Martin Luther King's message. And uh, Susan, I would love to, for you to elaborate on, on how his activism was inspired by his view of the Imago Dei and, and what does that mean for us? Sure. So uh, first of all, uh, thanks guys for letting me be up here with you. Um, so I brought my iPad just because I've been 
had the privilege, like I said, of reading a lot of material about Dr. King. And what's interesting about Dr. King is his identity was in Christ, mm. first and foremost. And we all have that together. And whether or not we recognize it while we're here on this earth, guess what? We're going to be together forever. So we might as well start figuring this out. Um, you know, one of the things that he wrote a lot about is the leadership of the church, because one of the reasons that he believed um, that Christians would rise up and be a huge factor in equality is because Jesus Christ actually is the great equalizer. And, um, and you know, he, he clearly understood, you know, that there was a difference between the Christianity that was taught in the Bible and the Christianity that he was experienced when he was going around. He's like, why is this different? And he wrote a lot about it. In fact, he repeatedly pleaded for people to enter into a personal relationship with God because when you're a personal relationship with God and you're talking to him every day, it's hard to hold on to the constructs of this world. And so um, I think that, you know, what he, this is one of the things he wrote. And there's some great books that you can read that Dr. King wrote that are, feel like they were written yesterday. And one is called Strength to Love. And here's what he wrote. In his magnanimous love, God freely offers to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Our humble and open-hearted acceptance is faith. So by faith, we're saved. Man filled with God and God operating through man bring unbelievable changes in our individual and social lives. You know, which that's, that could be said everywhere today. And I think, you know, one of the things that he wrote in another great book, which I really, really encourage you to read, is called Love Your Enemies. And he said... Um, that he believes that there is a really uh, huge reason why Jesus says, love your enemies. And these guys mentioned it up here, which is that, you know, love itself has a redemptive power, and that power transforms individuals. I think we've all had that experience. But just being friendly to a person, you know, it's just keep loving them. And sooner or later, they just can't stand it. You know, you cannot stand up to love. You know, and, um, you know, initially you may get feelings of guilt or feelings of they may hate you for a little bit, um, but you just keep loving them. And the power of your love, which has been put in your heart through the Holy Spirit, through the accomplished believing of Jesus Christ, you know, that is what is ultimately going to tear down barriers. And then this last thing that I just want to leave with you is that um, Dr. Luther, Dr. King said, you know, that it's going to be the power of love that transforms, not hate. And so, um, you know, just to reiterate, his identity was in Christ Jesus, and that comes across in almost everything that he did. But he believed it to the point, and I think you're going to make this point, that he acted on it. And one of the reasons that he acted is because of the laws of the land and what was happening, especially where he was, were standing between people and hope. And so that's why he wanted to be active. That's why he wanted to change. And he felt like the power of the gospel was what was going to do that. I wish we could uh, have this conversation for hours and hours. I really do appreciate it. And I'm, I'm engaged by it. Um, I've been asked uh, multiple times over the last few weeks as we've introduced the conversation of race, what's next? Um, and my response is, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I don't know, and I would say that the majority of churches across America don't know what's next. We, we just don't know. But, but where we're starting is a conversation. And so with that idea that I don't know what I don't know, I would love to hear from you guys 
What are we not asking? What are the questions that we need to be asking, and, and where do we go from here from your perspective? Um, I think one of the things that she alluded to was when you said, hey, this is about you know, moving from the head to the heart, you know, what you know and now how you feel. And I would tell you, we need a lot of hand theology. The way you feel should cause you to respond in a certain way. So this idea of loving people, and I would say one of the things of what's next is we need, you're not entitled to display compassion whenever you want to. The Bible calls us to be compassionate folks. So we should be grieved anytime we see injustice. Justice is God's real estate. And we should be people that are moved into that kind of action. And I don't know really what the next step is of how we as a church stand up for some things, but I just know we have to. So to me, we can't just have some prayer rallies. That prayer should then cause us to be, you know, to move. And so to me, you know, whether it's responding and just quickly on your Facebook, just saying, praying, you know, just, I don't know, just looking across the street, engaging people in a very loving manner, going out of your way to engage where it's not about the police shooting or anything like that with all the other variables, but just saying, oh, there's this Muslim cat in my neighborhood that I just need to get to know just because I'm gonna to get to know him because he clearly has a different faith. I'm gonna love him, not because he's a project, but just because he is made in the image of God and God is calling me to know him and hopefully God will use me to bring the gospel and I'm gonna to get to know someone. So to me, I think a simple steps is just go across the street. Um, I think you need very practical things. Um, yeah. I love it. Herb, I'd love to hear. I agree with everything he said. Just um, like the, the cliche, don't be a stranger. Talk to everybody. No man's an island. Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men. You can't catch everybody with the same bait, you know. You got to be willing to go outside of your comfort zone and just talk to people, you know. Somebody who doesn't look like you, somebody who's different than you, and you'll be surprised that you have more in common with them than you think you might. So just be open. Talk to people. Can I say, can I say this? When you're doing that, Social economics we were talking about plays a major factor in the people that don't look like you. It's, it's easy to go in your neighborhood when you're making whatever you're making and they're living in your neighborhood and they eat the same place. They, those are people that look like you to a certain degree. They smell like you in that way. You need people who do not. They are different social economic. That's when you start, the value system's indifferent, and that's when you start rubbing shoulders. And you're like, I don't really like how he's rubbing my shoulder like that, because there's just, there's a difference there. And I think that's where we have to engage. That's the power of the gospel. That's where you see Jesus, you know, talking to the prostitute. That's where you see the Zacchaeus. That's where you see the fishermen, where it's like, he didn't, why would he talk to those people? The Samaritan woman. He went out of his way to talk to people who were very different from him. So when we say different, that's what I mean, not just people who, you know, aren't whatever ethnicity you are. And then, uh, the, I mean, just to go on that for a second, I think the biggest thing that you can do is see the world through, through the eyes of Jesus Christ. And, you know, when you look at a person, um, regardless of their story, we can learn from them, but, you know, everyone needs to hear uh, about salvation. Everyone needs to hear uh, everyone needs to be loved. Everyone needs to see Christ in you. And so I would say that if you're hesitant about a situation or if you think, if you're uncomfortable, if you feel like, well, maybe I don't have the answer, keep in mind you have a connection to God. You have access to other information. 
and you could be the right person at the right time. And you just have to be bold and love people and speak up. Amen. Andre, as you're talking, John 1, 14 comes to mind. And the word dwelt among us. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as from the only begotten Father. Um, glory that manifested itself, the end of the verse says, in grace and truth. And I think it's so instructive what you guys have just said. The proximity in this conversation um, has to happen if we're ever going to uh, begin to come to a common ground. Um, I'm grateful for you, brothers and sister, and uh, I'm grateful for your voice this morning. I wish we had an opportunity to engage this conversation further, but what I would like to do is uh, when we close here this morning in just about a minute, these guys, I'd like to ask if you just go out to the connect table, you go out here and take a left. These guys are going to be standing and Susan uh, are going to be at the connect table. If you'd like to have dialogue with them, uh, we would love for you to do so. And um, yeah, thank you for being here today. We're grateful for your presence. We hope that Story City, not just Story City, Reality, uh, Cornerstone, South LA, other churches in our city. Uh, we have such a unique perspective on this issue, and, and I pray that we will overlay hope and the truth of the scriptures that can unite us and unify us for a common vision, and that is ultimately exalting Jesus in our lives, and when we do so, it will bring about the intended result. Let me pray for us, and, uh, and we're done. We have no song. <laughs> we have no uh, closing hymn, and uh, we've already taken the offering, so God is good, all right? Jesus, we love you. Thank you for today. God, thank you for your presence, Lord. God, you understand empathy, God, because you took on flesh, Lord. God became man. You dwelt among us and we beheld your glory and your glory was so instructive to us that we began to get a picture and a glimpse of what grace and truth is like. God, may we be a people that understands that um, God, may you move us in the direction, Lord, of loving our neighbor, loving one another. God, thank you for the voices represented on this panel today. And God, may the spirit of the living God um, drive us forward. I believe our progress will only take us as far as our empathy will carry us. And God, I pray by the spirit of God, you would brought us into that place today. And so Jesus, we love you. You are the one we put on a pedestal today. May we look to you for hope and satisfaction and joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you for being here today.